Hello, everyone. Welcome to the February 2018 episode of Solidarity Is This. I'm your host, Deepa Ayer. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. So this podcast is something that I do monthly where I talk to people who are active in social change movements. And we talk about how they practice multiracial solidarity and what we can learn about it. And for those of you who've been with us a little bit longer, thank you for coming back. And I hope that all of you will subscribe to the podcast, download it, share it. You can find it over at iTunes. You can also find it at www.solidarityis.org. And on that website, please check out the Solidarity Syllabus that accompanies all of these episodes. So before we get started, I wanted to share with you my favorite Solidarity news of the month. Have you read or heard about hashtag taco trucks at every mosque? That's right. So this is a story I read on NPR, and it's a story about how two residents in Orange County, California, named Rita Hamida and Ben Vasquez, created hashtag taco trucks at every mosque. So obviously there's food, and it's served out of taco trucks at mosques, but there's also more. So you might not know that Orange County is actually a majority people of color community. Latinos make up about a third of the county's 3.2 million residents, and about 120,000 Muslims live there too. Vasquez and Hamida are looking to create deeper bonds between the Latino and Muslim communities, not only with food, but obviously with conversation and learning. Vasquez is a history teacher at a local high school, and she's quoted as saying, There are layers of sharing beyond just food. It's our job as activists to nurture understanding and build relationships. And we are developing deeper relationships as we build this. So check out the NPR story on taco trucks at every mosque and share your favorite Solidarity Action of the Month. You can tweet at at Solidarity hashtag is over on Twitter so we can share the information. So let's get started with this episode of Solidarity Is This. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we talk about a lot of issues. Immigration, the Muslim ban, law enforcement surveillance, violence and harassment targeting women. And we've learned a lot about how activists and organizations are messaging or signaling solidarity. Well, for this episode, which is called Network Weavers, I was curious about how people organize and structure solidarity work. We know about coalitions and alliances, co-ops and 501c3s, networks. These are all ways in which people and communities are structuring their work to build social change and to be in solidarity with each other. But I was curious as to whether there might be one structure that is most conducive to building solidarity. So to dive deeper into that question, we're talking about networks today. I'm talking to two advocates, one at the local level and one at the national level. We're starting with Jane Park, who's with a grassroots organization in Silver Spring, Maryland. So Jane and I go back a while. She actually hired me for my first movement job at an Asian American organization many decades ago and propelled me on this transformative journey I've been on. And meanwhile, Jane has been on a transformative journey of her own. After years of working in Asian American communities, both nationally and locally, as well as in philanthropy, Jane is now at the helm of Impact Silver Spring, based in Silver Spring, Maryland. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Deepa. Glad to be here. So, Jane, let's start a little bit by talking about your own personal point of entry into social change work. Tell us what brought you into it and where your journey's taken you. 
I started um, working on Asian American justice issues probably over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And after over a decade of working in the Asian American justice movement, I really felt the pull to move more into multiracial spaces. And I think the real reason behind that is sort of the feeling I had that too many immigrants, including my own family, come to this country without fully understanding the history of anti-Black racism in the United States and the ongoing effects of this history on today's socioeconomic realities for all communities of color. So I just really felt the need and the desire to be in more spaces with Black and Latino communities Mm -hmm. to really better understand for myself how their histories and experiences connect to my own experiences and struggles as an Asian American woman. So let's shift a little bit to hearing about Impact Silver Spring. So it's a very grassroots and neighborhood-focused organization based, as we said, in Silver Spring in Montgomery County, Maryland. So can you tell us a little bit about the geographic and demographic and racial dynamics at play in the county? Sure. So Montgomery County is a large suburban area right outside of Washington, D.C. And I would characterize Montgomery County as extremely diverse, but yet extremely divided Mm. along lines of race and socioeconomic class. A lot of the neighborhoods where impact works and focuses are predominantly neighborhoods with high concentrations of Black and Latino residents, as well as middle-class white residents. Mm -hmm. Fewer Asian residents in the neighborhoods where we work. I would characterize the communities where we work as highly diverse racially as well as socioeconomically. So, you know, we have a lot of middle-class homeowners living alongside tenants in low-income apartment buildings, for example. Yeah, and I can attest to that. I'm actually, as you know, Jane, a resident of Silver Spring myself. And I think that these dynamics that you're talking about, I see them every single day. And I'm wondering, you know, you talked a little bit about the fact that it's diverse but divided. And that leads me to think a little bit about how, in many ways, when you live in Montgomery County, you hear this narrative, right, that people of color make up the majority, that it's a very diverse community, that it's kind of looking forward and ahead into America's changing racial landscape. But there are a lot of equity challenges around racial, economic, and educational lines. And I'm curious to hear what it is that you all are confronting at Impact Silver Spring when it comes to those divisions around equity? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, that's definitely true that I think Montgomery County generally is viewed as a very progressive area that celebrates its diversity, which is wonderful. But when you peel back the layers, and in fact, the Urban Institute recently came out with a report Mm. sort of analyzing racial equity data in the county. And so when you peel back the layers, what you really see is that there are huge disparities when it comes to white residents and Black and Latino residents on indicators around high school graduation rates, enrollment in college, income levels, and home ownership. Mm -hmm. So we are dealing with a lot of big equity gaps based on on race. And so tell us a little bit about the types of projects and networks that you all incubate and organize around within Impact Silver Spring. So how do the right. how do networks form? What are some of the challenges that you find in the network approach that you have? 
And how are you all trying to address some of these equity challenges we just talked about? So we support resident-led action projects all throughout the neighborhoods where we work. And it's interesting to see the issues and the priorities that these resident groups sort of name as things that they care about and want to work on. Mm -hmm. A lot of them just speak to the equity challenges that exist in the county. So we've got lots of action groups who are focused on economic equity issues, mostly around microenterprise and forming worker cooperatives. Mm -hmm. We've got groups of residents who have organized around what I perceive as environmental equity issues, the lack of safe green spaces for kids to play Mm -hmm. in a lot of the neighborhoods where we work as compared to what kids in more affluent neighborhoods have. So we have groups of residents who've taken action to, for example, clean up their neighborhood park that's been ridden with crime and that's not cleaned up regularly and it's just unsafe for their kids to play. We have groups of residents who took action to reopen a shuttered nature center in the community that had been long abandoned and neglected. And they sort of organized to advocate for the county and the state to reinvest in the reopening of that nature center so that they could have the benefit um, of that resource in the community. So I would say just throughout the network that we support through these small resident-led action projects, Mm -hmm. each one really speaks to the equity challenges and gaps that we have in the county. And so when you talk about the theory of change that you all have, I know that, and I'm going to read it out loud for folks, the theory of change says, we believe that more equitable communities can be created by building community-based networks of mutual understanding, support, and action across lines of difference. I wanted to probe a little bit around the last clause, across lines of difference, and wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how the uh, neighborhood action groups are working together across those lines, and what are some of the challenges and questions that come up as, say, Black and Latino residents are working together? So if I could just step back a little bit and explain a little bit about sort of the philosophy of our network approach, Mm -hmm. because I think that this concept is really important for people in understanding what makes a network approach unique and how it ties to our equity goals, that the core of our network approach is really about challenging traditional hierarchical structures and centralized top-down leadership. And so the way that we build networks is in a really decentralized fashion. And our whole goal is to really make sure that power is not concentrated you know, for example, with me as the executive director or even with the organization. Mm -hmm. But in a network, the whole idea is that power gets distributed and leadership is shared. We pay a lot of attention to process, and we believe that the process for how we go about achieving our equity goals are just as important as the equity outcomes that we're seeking. So sort of what we've experienced in terms of the process of bringing people together across lines of difference is that that it's a process and that there's always a need for homogeneous affinity spaces, especially in communities that have been marginalized and don't feel a sense of their own power, that we are very committed to making sure that ethnic, racial-specific communities have their own safe spaces to be with each other and in that process to find and tap into their own sense of personal and collective power. So we spend a lot of time actually facilitating hosting affinity spaces. So does that mean sort of like Black-only residents have a space 
to convene and Latino only residents have a space to convene before sort of folks are mixed together. Yes. And we do have some spaces where people are mixing. Mm -hmm. So this is where we've introduced a new um, initiative in our work called the Network Weaver Learning Program, which is an intensive four-month learning program where we do bring in a mixed group of people, mixed both racially, ethnically, and socioeconomically, Mm -hmm. to really go deep together on an intensive learning journey to understand the history of racism, how it continues to play out today. Um, We go into issues around power, privilege, and cultural bias. We get a lot into sort of the philosophy and values around network leadership and how it's really different from traditional hierarchical forms of leadership, and to just get people to think about working and leading in new ways that enable all voices to be brought to the table. So our experience is that a lot of deep work happens in our affinity spaces, but then for mixed spaces to really work well, Mm -hmm. you need to put people through an intensive learning process. And especially for our white allies, that it's important that they understand sort of the effects of dominant culture. Because so much of it is invisible, and I feel like it's so important to make it, to name it, and how dominant culture impacts the way we behave, the way we lead, the way we hold power. And if you're not aware of how all that is playing out, then it's easy for those behaviors to just act out when you're in space with other people. I did a podcast a few months ago with a group called Freedom Inc. in Madison, Wisconsin, that's kind of similar to Impacts Over Spring. And they said exactly the same thing you said, which is that having these affinity spaces where people of the same racial or ethnic or economic background can first come together and have a safe space, that that is the first step before you kind of start to, you know, bring people together. And so I think it's really important to just lift that up again, because that seems to be a practice that folks are doing around the country that's actually working if they're organizing in multiracial spaces. The second thing that you said was around that I wanted to lift up is, you know, you talked about the process being, in fact, more important at times than the outcomes. And I think this is so important, especially in this culture where we're always going so fast, right? And trying to figure out, well, what's the outcome? What's the success story? What, you know, how do we evaluate success? That it's really important to sit with values and practice them. So I really want to appreciate that. And then the third thing, and this is a question that I'll turn around to you, is you talked a little bit about the network approach being one that is not rooted in the traditional hierarchical structures that we see in our communities, in movement culture even. And I'm curious to know if you can perhaps walk us through, uh, maybe using the example of the co-op that you mentioned, um, how does this network approach play itself out in terms of the ways that people are connecting, but also, you know, pushing back on this idea that you have to have a leader that drives decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Talking about it in in the context of concrete examples helpful. And as part of that, I want to weave in our values, which undergirds everything that we do. And so basically, you know, we have a core of like six or seven values that we are always in our head and our hearts as we're out there in community, you know, and among them is this whole idea that Every person, no matter who you are, you have something valuable and important to contribute to the world. We sort of feel like when we're out in community, we're on an expedition to find the gifts that we know exist in each and every person. 
And I think the challenge is, you know, so often in our dominant paradigm, we think of low-income communities from a deficiency mindset, you know, poor and needy, and then our response tends to be very paternalistic and Mm top-down. And we try to flip it, and instead, as we're going or working in these communities, with low-income residents and engaging them and connecting with them, we're always approaching it from an appreciative asset perspective, right? That we see you as a human being. We know that each human being, no matter who you are, you have something important and valuable to contribute to the world. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our approach and philosophy is to uncover that and to create spaces where people can discover and name that for themselves and in the company of others. And so in the process of doing that, so I'll use the cooperative as one example. I mean, this mm-hmm. this is an endeavor that really started five or six years ago, as we've been doing a lot of work in one of the neighborhoods called Long Branch, and just started by going door-to-door in apartment buildings to engage residents who live there. Mm-hmm. And again, with this appreciative listening approach, and as we're listening to what people say their gifts are, their skills are, their dreams are, we find ways to connect people to each other who have a shared passion or skill. And so a lot of our work then takes place in these small action groups that we form. And so starting five or six years ago, as we were in the Long Branch neighborhood, knocking on doors, listening to people, we heard a lot of people expressing their gifts around sewing, around landscaping, around you know, that they cleaned houses, and also that they had aspirations to someday own their business. And so that just led us into creating lots of different spaces and small action groups of people who had shared interests. Um, And a lot of those action groups then moved into people starting their own micro business or small business. And more recently, we've been supporting groups of people in in forming worker cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And cooperatives, is a model that's very common in a lot of Central American countries. It's the aspiration that residents just began to name for themselves. You know, why can't we start a cooperative cleaning business here in Montgomery County? I mean, that's just a quick summary of, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot more complicated. There's a lot more involved right. in sort of the process to, you know, get to the point of an outcome. But that's, in essence, sort of the approach that we take. And how do you find that the community of, you know, you mentioned white allies. We also talked a little bit about the county itself. How do you find that they're responding to the work that is happening within these co-ops as well as the neighborhood action groups? I think on the whole, it's been very positive. Mm -hmm. I think when people come into the space and they see the capacities that exist in community, you can't help but be inspired. Right. And when we're able to get people to come into our space who are from the more established establishment, the response has always been, I think it takes them outside of their traditional ways of thinking to seeing what what's possible when you believe in people. Right. And when you believe that people who live in communities have capacities and gifts and skills and efficacy. They just need to be given the the space and the opportunities to actualize their goals. 
So Jane, as we close up, I wanted to ask you if you can share a little bit about what you all are prioritizing right now. Are there some exciting initiatives that you're really looking forward to seeding this year in particular? Yeah, there's a lot that's bubbling up in our network. You know, we've got some exciting actions that are percolating. One is a group of people working to lift up the history of anti-Black racism, both in the country and in the county. In the more immediate, we got we have groups of people who've organized to host a candidates forum. There are a lot of people running for county executive in the upcoming election, and so they're organizing a probably a first time forum just focused on issues around racial equity and immigrant rights. Okay. So we're excited to just have that space and opportunity to be able to ask pointed questions of the candidates around racial equity issues and to hear how they respond. And we just think that's another way to hold public officials accountable and for them to see that there's a growing network of people who care about these issues. So as we close, Jane, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what sustains you in this work, right? You talked actually in the beginning when you were talking about your point of entry, that part of what you're grounding yourself in is your identity as an Asian American woman. And I'm curious to know what are some practices that sustain you as you do this really incredible work, which is also a long-term struggle in many ways. Yes. That's such a good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. (laughs) But I think as I get older and wiser, I've been in this movement work in different capacities for a long time now. Mm -hmm. I I do think that I've gotten better at prioritizing self-care physically. There's probably more I could be doing for the emotional self-care and the spiritual. I'm striving for that. That's my aspiration Mm -hmm. in a few years in addition to the physical self-care of exercise and eating well and getting enough sleep, I'm really trying to integrate more of a daily spiritual discipline and practice into my life. And I'm realizing more and more how much the individual transformation piece is foundational to all of this work and that if we're not taking care of ourselves, Mm -hmm. that we're not doing justice to the movement overall. And so it's something that I try to reinforce with the staff here that this whole model of, you know, working yourself to the bone, you know, up to hours a week isn't helping the movement. And that transformation and change really has to start with ourselves personally. And that starts with really being committed to self-care practices. Absolutely. Movement weaving requires, I think, both self and community care. And I want to thank you, Jane, for modeling that and talking about that and being so honest about how difficult it can be at times. And of course, gratitude for the work that you have done and that you continue to do. Thank you so much for joining me on Solidarity Is This. Thank you, Deepa. I hope that everyone who's listening will support Impact Silver Springs' work. You can check out their work at www.impactsilverspring.org. Now, before we talk to our next guest, I wanted to provide a description from a website I found called networkweaver.blogspot.com, and they have a great definition for networks that I wanted to share. So they say, networks are boundaryless patterns of connections between and among people. They cross geographic, digital, demographic, ideological, economic, and social boundaries. Networks intersect and overlap. Again, that's from networkweaver.blogspot.com. 
Clearly, Impact Silver Spring is experimenting with this model, and there are many others as well. You might be interested in checking out the podcast I did in 2017. It's called Our Community is Our Campaign, and I speak with the co-founders of an organization in Madison, Wisconsin called Freedom Inc., which also uses similar ways that Impact Silver Spring is experimenting with when it comes to solidarity. All right. Now we're going from the very local to the national to understand how a movement approach can spur social change on policy issues. And for that, I'm in conversation with Angel Padilla. He's the policy director at Indivisible. Before joining Indivisible, Angel worked at nonprofits and on the Hill in various capacities on immigration and health policy issues. Angel, welcome to Solidarity Is This. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Angel, I want to start by having you tell us a little bit about your personal point of entry into social change work. What brought you into it, and where has your journey taken you? I mean, I can think of back to college when I was involved in you know social justice stuff, but as a, you know, as a student, you know, volunteering at different places. But I do think that the thing that brought me into this kind of work is mm-hmm. my background. My parents are immigrants from El Salvador. They were fleeing a brutal civil war. You know, I was born in California, but I was born here because my parents had to leave their country. And so immigration has always been really important to me. I mean, hearing my parents and their story of not only coming to the United States, but crossing through a number of countries and through Mexico and then, you know, crossing the river. But then also once they got the United States, it was just as hard to settle. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've heard stories from my parents that it took them two years of basically looking for the right job or a place to live. And it took them you know, years to really get settled. And so that experience um, is what led me to the work that I previously did, which was more, you know, immigration related. Yeah. And I think for so many of us, it is personal in that way, right? And I talked to so many folks on the podcast who specifically mentioned their parents' points of entry as immigrants. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm also curious to know why Indivisible? Why is it that you are where you are? I know that Indivisible just turned one. So congratulations. Tell us also how it got started and why you are there in this particular moment. We started after the election. I remember on November 9th, the morning of November 9th, I showed up at work. I was at the National Immigration Law Center and everyone was kind of in this like, what do we do now? Right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone I knew, all my friends were trying to figure out how to respond to this crisis because we were in a crisis all of a sudden. We weren't going to have a president who was anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, racist, sexist, all the things, right? And the way that Indivisible started was, I don't know if you did this, but me and my friends started, you know, we started forming groups. I mean, Mm -hmm. we got together to talk about what was happening and what we could do to respond. I remember getting invited to a number of these, like, hey, we're all getting together this weekend to talk about what we do now. That was an organic thing that was happening in response to Donald Trump. People were just forming these little groups to talk about how to respond. And so a few of us drafted this guide. It's the the indivisible guide, a practical guide to resisting the Trump agenda. Back then, this is November, December of last year, we thought, well, you know, we don't have a lot of skills. We are, you know, we do policy work. And so uh, what we know is either policy or politics. And Mm -hmm. one thing that a lot of people don't know is the way that Congress works. It's a black box for a lot of people. And even now, you know, my job now is to follow what's happening in Congress. And some of the congressional procedures are, they're just alien to the most people. And, the, and I don't understand also Most people don't understand them. Um, but that was what we thought we could contribute. You know, we understand Congress. And what we have also seen, what we saw back in 2008, 2009 with the Tea Party movement, was that just a small, you know, small number of people can really stop 
the, right. uh, you know, an agenda, right? We saw the Tea Party and it, how effective it was at stopping the Obama agenda or slowing it down. And so we thought if we can replicate that, then we can maybe mitigate some of the harm that we expect from, from Trump. So, you know, I think it's interesting because, as you said, you know, a lot of people got mobilized, right, after this past election. But I think what's interesting to me about Indivisible is that you've sustained that momentum because a lot of groups have come and gone, right? People have abandoned or they've moved into different configurations to address the issues of the day and the like. And I think it's one, because of what you said around the knowledge that you bring in terms of understanding policy and process, but it's also the way that you all are engaging with communities around the country at the very local level, which I think is uh, tantamount to your success. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you bring people together in you know places around the country. How do you structure those sorts of connections and actions? I think that's why we're still around a year later. Because we don't pretend to be the leaders of anything. The leaders are the groups on the ground. We have thousands of groups all over the country, and they are their own independent entity. And we try to give them guidance on things, but that's it. I mean, we don't tell them to do anything. We try to give them the tools to make their jobs easier, but they are in control of their own local group. And that's why I think that's why we still have groups. And that's because they are empowered to take action locally, and they are making those relationships themselves. So they're communicating with their members of Congress. They're forming partnerships with their local organizations, you know, other partners. You know, they talk to their own press and they usually have their own press person and they have their own policy person and they have committees that focus on different issues. They really are their own their own entity. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, we're still around mm-hmm. is that we there is a little bit of an identity, right? Like we have tried to, to cultivate like an, an indivisible identity. And that's why there are thousands of groups all over the country that have Indivisible in their name. So it might be like Indivisible San Francisco or Indivisible Brooklyn or Indivisible Santa Cruz, Indivisible Austin. And that does give us like a like a shared identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has helped also keep a lot of that energy going in. And to be honest, we've gotten some wins over the last year. And I think that really does motivate people. I want to lift up something you said, because I think that it is connected to what my previous guest said, too, which is sort of the importance of understanding how decentralized leadership can really empower people on the ground. And in many ways, you all, I mean, obviously, you have a leadership structure, right? But it's really the work of the local groups that usually comes to the fore. And so I think it's really important to understand that this decentralized network model can be empowering to people who want to engage in their communities. So having said that, can you tell us a little bit about those wins that you talked about and what kinds of lessons you all have learned as a result of seeing them happen? The biggest win I think that we've seen in this during this resistance era, right, the post-Trump era, was on ACA. What we saw a year ago and throughout most of last year was hundreds of thousands of people who came out and basically said no. They said they did not want Congress to take away their health care. And a lot of our groups were involved in that. And, and there were a number of partners, national partners, that were also working on this. And we would never take credit for that win entirely, right? I mean, it was a, a big movement. Right. And there were, you know, there was Planned Parenthood and there was National Adapt. Um, it was a huge collaborative of groups that came together under the same banner. Yes, but our groups were out and making it difficult. I mean, Hmm. what we've always said is a member of Congress cares mainly not about, you know, what happens here in D.C., but what happens back at home in their district. And if they are going home and they are facing angry constituents that are telling them, don't do something, we're going to remember this next election, 
then that begins to influence their behavior. As you know, this is a podcast on solidarity and multiracial solidarity. And I'm curious to know if that's something that's come up in terms of the work that is happening on the ground through these different groups that are under the indivisible banner. Are people working across racial lines, economic lines? And what are some of the challenges and what are some of the possibilities? I do want to highlight immigration as one of the issues that um, that has been a priority for us from the beginning. We have tried as much as we can to get our groups engaged, and they have. But the groups associated with Indivisible around the country are fiercely calling for their, their members of Congress to pass a DREAM Act. And what we have told them from the beginning was, you are a local group, and it's great that you want to do immigration work and you want to fight for the DREAM Act. The most important thing you can do is connect with your local immigrant rights group so mm-hmm. that you, first of all, so you don't step on any toes, right? There are groups there that have been working for years, and you want right. to make sure that you are supporting rather than, you know, encroaching or, like, entering into their space. You know, every state is different. Every locality is different. So if you really want to understand the politics in an area, you should connect with your local immigrant rights organization. And that's what our groups have been doing. And so there have been connections between our individual groups and the local group mm-hmm. doing the work. And in this case, it's immigration, but it happens with other areas, too. That is very important to us. We don't want anyone to step on any toes because these are serious and sensitive issues and we want to make sure that everyone is respectful. So what is sort of the number one call to action that you'd like people to know about that you all are talking about within your uh, indivisible groups around immigration for this month in particular? Right now, what Congress is working on is immigration. And you know, we're coming up to a March 5th deadline. It's a, not really a deadline, it's a cliff where, you know, DreamWorks people with DACA are going to start to lose their protections at, you know, over a thousand a day. And so that is the focus, I think, right now, which is Congress needs to act to fix the mess that Donald Trump made. DACA recipients are at risk, and it's up to Congress to do something about it. And Republicans so far have failed in their, in their job to do so. And so I think in February, that is still the focus. We are also flagging for at least our membership that there are other things that are also around the corner. So the next big agenda item for Republicans is an infrastructure bill. So Mm -hmm. we're preparing for for that fight, which is another giveaway. It's uh, basically giving away our bridges, our roads, the foreign investors and the Wall Street banks. That is one of the, the other things that we're focusing on. Well, there's no shortage of issues, obviously, in this moment. But for folks who are interested in learning more about the immigration debate that Angel referred to, we're going to have some information and some links up on the Solidarity syllabus that accompanies this podcast. So please check it out at solidarityis.org so you can learn and also take action in these crucial weeks leading up to, as Angel said, the cliff, which is March 5th. So Angel, as we close, I want to ask you, you know, you're working on a lot. You're constantly in motion. What sustains you during the times of crises like the one that we're in today? The people that I've met working on the different issues, they're incredible people. I mean, the talking to the dreamers, people who are one of my closest friends now is Grace Martinez, who's a dreamer. She's a doctor. Fantastic. She's fantastic. And I've been working with her pretty closely and watching her through all the things that she's gone through. I continue to fight. That's inspiring. So when I like when I get tired, you know, it's easy to just remember like, hey, it's, I recognize my own privilege, and I like I can do a little bit more. And if I can do a little bit more to help some of my friends, that's what I'm going to do. And she's just one of like a thousand people that I've met over the last year that are doing this kind of work. I totally agree with you, and I think that that's something that is inspiring and also motivational, right? I mean, if people who have so much to lose are putting their bodies and rights 
on the line, like Grisa and Jonathan and so many others, then that's something that those of us, as you said, with privilege should be also able to do and support. So thank you so much, Angel, for joining me on Solidarity Is This. If you're interested in learning more about Indivisible, check out www.indivisible.org and make sure you get contacted and connected with a group in your area. Thanks, Angel. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. So as we close the February 2018 episode called Network Weavers, I want to encourage all of you to please support and learn from the work that Impact Silver Spring and Indivisible are doing. I also want to encourage you to check out the Solidarity Syllabus and past episodes. You can find them over at solidarityis.org or at iTunes. And before I end, I often share information about some books that I've been reading And in between the autobiography of Bruce Springsteen, yes, I'm a big fan, I've also been revisiting the writings of Bell Hooks on visions of love. And I want to end with a quote by her on solidarity. She says, Solidarity is not the same as support. To experience solidarity, we must have a community of interests, shared beliefs, and goals around which to unite, to build sisterhood. Support can be occasional. It can be given and just as easily withdrawn. Solidarity requires sustained, ongoing commitment. I want to thank Jane and Angel again for that sustained, ongoing commitment to working with our communities, building solidarity, and creating social change. And I want to thank all of you who are engaged in those efforts as well. Thank you for joining me. This is Deepa Iyer, and I will talk to you again on the March episode of Solidarity Assist.